Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. In October 2016, the World War I Historical Association hosted a World War I Centennial Symposium at the MacArthur Memorial. The symposium focused on the year 1916. The following is a presentation by William McMullen, a member of the U.S. Navy League, the U.S. Naval Institute, and a past executive director of the U.S. Naval Shipbuilding Museum. He explored the topic, Big Navies, Big Innovations, Big Battle, Then Fizzle. Why? The practical information I'm going to impart doesn't come from being a, a reenactor or running a museum. It started in 1971. I was in the last graduating class of ROTC at Yale University. And my thesis that I had to write before uh, we received commissions was on the Battle of Jutland. And at that time, the Battle of Jutland was just another battle. World War II was the preeminent thing we were studying. Later on, after being a damage control officer for a number of years, I wound up uh, attached to the Naval Historical Center in Washington, D.C. And my job was I was part of a team to decide whether or not we were going to reactivate the heavy cruisers of the Des Moines class or the Iowa class battleships as cruise missile carriers. This was during the Reagan administration and John Lehman, who was the Secretary of the Navy at the time. And we had people who were experts on missiles or experts on all kinds of things with the ship, but my part was survivability, engineering, casualty, and keeping the ship afloat. So that's what I got to look at. And I was very surprised to find, as I was doing the research, that a lot of what went into our, at that time they were called dreadnoughts, and battleships, we actually incorporated into every refit of our ships from 1921 on. And we did that by studying the German ships that were given to us as war prizes. Ostfriesland is the one everybody always remembers, because it took Billy Mitchell days to sink as a stationary target. And there was a reason for that. Uh, there was no crew on board, there was no damage control, yet the ship remained afloat. That has to do a lot with the way it was constructed. So I'm going to try to, in the amount of time that I have, to talk about the difference between the British, what was, what was running their psyche, their thinking, and their uh, tradition, and Germany. And if I have time, maybe if I don't, we can save this for another, another time, the United States, which was in the wings. 19th century, new era unfolds. Um, three powers uh, represented by certain, certain things that were nationalistic for each one. Tradition, tradition in the Royal Navy, ambition, the Imperial German Navy, and transition of the United States Navy. Now, those three things um, are part and parcel of the um, psychology of what each of the planning divisions of, the, of those countries had in determining how they were going to design their ships. Uh, there's a big evolution of technology going on, and this was between armor, gunnery, uh, fire control, uh, types of uh, guns that were used. The industrial capacities of each of these, these countries was also very, very important to how they were going to design these ships and what they could do in order to get the ships that they, they really wanted. Global necessities dictated what types of ships they would make. Uh, where they would go, what was the cruising range, that's those sorts of things. National pride was something that everybody tapped into. Britain, because uh, they were an island nation, and they had a history of that tradition. 
uh, Germany because the Kaiser wanted to be as good, if not better, than what, the, uh, what Britain was doing. He was always very, very interested in having a navy. But being a landlocked, not a landlocked, but a, a more of a land power, this was something that, you know, he had to sell this to the people, and it was a matter of national pride. The financial capacity, how did they pay for all this? The lead-up to World War I was probably the largest single expense in history in just building the navies. If you took the dollars that were spent then and converted them to today's dollars, this is an astronomical figure for these countries to absorb. And finally, the governmental fortitude. Could you get your members of parliament to vote for this every year? That was something that uh, politically, on a local level, fed into the, uh, the national level in each case. Everybody knows who this is. Yes, this is Admiral Nelson, Horatio Nelson. And he represents the traditional part of the Royal Navy. The wooden walls of England always protected uh, the, the country. Um, mostly the time the antagonist was France, historically. England relied on its navy, uh, not just for its own home defense, but also for this empire that it had around the world. Now, innovation was taking, taking place. In the United States, uh, iron ships were, were being built. One ship had no sails whatsoever. This was the Monitor. It had a revolving turret. This was, like, incredible to the, to the British. Uh, how could you have a, a navy that does that? Well, it was a riverine navy that the United States was creating at that time, so it was a little bit different from what uh, Britain needed. She created, this is the HMS Warrior, which is in the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. If you ever get over there, take a look at it. Because this is the epitome of a Royal Navy around, from 1850 to about 1870. She had breech-loading guns. Breech-loading gun was a love-hate relationship with the Royal Navy. Couldn't make up their minds whether muzzle loaders were the best way to go because they hardly ever exploded when you fired them. Uh, breech-loading guns were always suspect, but it depended on how you could engineer that locking mechanism in the breech that, that made the difference. That was on, on board the HMS Warrior, by the way. They came up with some new designs. Now, you'll note that in the center of the ship, right below the funnel or the smokestack, there's a turret. These turrets had muzzle-loading guns. Uh, it's also at the lowest part of the ship, just above the waterline, uh, where, where they change the, uh, the color of the vessel. Uh, this is because they wanted to direct enemy fire onto the superstructures above and not hit those, those turrets. It's a great idea, except when there's a heavy seaway and uh, you take on water through that, that same turret, which is what happened. The ship's capsized and sank. They then decided that, well, let's, let's be a little more modern. So they put the muzzle loaders on board the ships that were, again, low in the water, but you had a, a citadel, basically, to protect the engines. These have, again, muzzle-loading uh, rifles in those two turrets. You can tell because they're very short when they protrude out, the, out of the turret face. Uh, this was a very, very uh, revolutionary thing. You don't see there are no sails on there. They got a little bigger, and they also decided that, well, um, technology is, is going by leaps and bounds every few years. Last night I had some models outside of the area um, where we had dinner, and the very, very smallest of those, those were in the same scale as we had in the First World War, which is the later larger ones. All this was over a period between 20 and 30 years. So the technology uh, every year made something more obsolete. Uh, for Britain, uh, it was really, really hard because they did have this tradition and they wanted to hold on to it, but they couldn't hold on to a tradition long enough if it only lasted six months. What they decided to do was to come up with a formula to um, protect their vessels. And this came right up until World War I, and that was for every 
inch that you had in the gun circumference, say 13-inch gun, 15-inch gun, which is the largest, you'd have to have an equal amount of, uh, of armor. Well, that's really not practical because you actually have to make the ship move, and the engines have to be powerful enough to do this, and you wound up with small ships that were more like flat irons that would you know, sink to the bottom. And so they decided, well, what's the best way to do that? Well, don't put a turret. Have the guns just out in the open. Well, if you're serving those guns, that's really not the best thing for your well-being uh, in terms of a battle and also uh, in terms of a heavy sea. There you see a pretty good example of what they, what they look like with no turret. So the guns were perfectly exposed to the elements, enemy fire, everything else. They did raise the freeboard a little bit because of the uh, saving and the weight. It's a little picture of what the guns look like on the deck. And the armor that protected those guns really wasn't the guns. It was the uh, ammunition hoist down below. That was called the barbat. This period lasted for about eight years doing this. One of the things that, uh, that came out of this, and this is where the tradition and the technology doesn't add up, Austria and Italy fought a very short war. It was a naval war. And at the Battle of Lissa in the Adriatic, uh, there was some fancy ramming done because they couldn't get close enough to get all the guns to bear on each other. Uh, the ram bow became the rage. They were put on every ship. In fact, Dreadnought had a ram bow. This guy changed all that. This is uh, Captain Percy Scott. And he had this idea that instead of having every gun fire as it came to bear on the enemy, why don't we have a centralized fire control where somebody decides when to fire all the guns at one time to concentrate on a target? This guy, he actually took and he transformed the thinking of every one of the major navies, you know, um, hierarchy into thinking about global warfare. Uh, this is Albert, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was a, kind of a, an American nerd, if you would, at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And he wrote a book called The Influence of the Sea Power. That book was read by Jackie Fisher, was read by... Kaiser Wilhelm, who really took it as one of his Bibles, went everywhere that he went, and by uh, Theodore Roosevelt at that time, who was uh, President of the United States after becoming Secretary of the Navy for years. That tradition and the innovation are both shown in this particular uh, photograph, which is HMS Dreadnought in the background, and those are submarines. Those are E-class submarines. Now, Jackie Fisher, who invented the Dreadnought, supposedly, and battle cruisers, also was a very big proponent of submarines. And he was an iconoclast among the, the Royal Navy because they thought submarines were, you know, un-English. And uh, the dreadnought just represented, you know, what Britain was all about. Now, this fellow uh, was on board a ship that had uh, barbette turrets. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this was HMS Victoria, which was sunk in an accident by a ram bow, uh, but it was another vessel in the Royal Navy, and he was lucky to get out alive. He was sick at the time. He was in his cabin and stumbled out on deck just as the ship capsized and was washed away. That's uh, John Jellicoe, who later became the admiral in charge of Grand Fleet at the Battle of Jutland. Now, this was uh, Admiral Fisher's pride and joy. This is HMS Dreadnought. The United States had actually designed a Dreadnought, but it took so long to build things in the United States that by the time it was finished, it, it was after Dreadnought was completed. But Dreadnought was interesting because she had turbines, which is the first time they used turbines in a large vessel. Uh, she had uh, guns that were 13 point, uh, I'm sorry, 12 inch guns, uh, which were high velocity type uh, guns. And they were, you notice that they were not all on the center line. This is something they still hadn't quite gotten rid of. And the, the fact that you could have a broadside on either, 
on either side, but you're still two guns short of everything you had on board. The British explained that away by saying that the, the other turret was in reserve. All you had to do is reverse course, and you, know, you have two more guns that you could, you could bring on. She was, at her time, made every other vessel in the fleet obsolete. What did that do? Well, that created a level playing field. Later on, this is uh, uh, the uh, Queen Elizabeth. Now, last night there was a model that was there, but it was in the 1941 configuration. These were super dreadnoughts. This meant that they, could, they operated first on oil rather than, than coal. So coaling stations that you had all around the world you didn't need. Oil was quicker to, uh, to burn. You got higher uh, rate of steam. You get steam up really quick. Uh, you could regulate how much you need. You didn't keep uh, throwing coal into the uh, furnaces. You didn't have to do coaling, which was one of the things that was uh, excruciatingly painful for crews to deal with. The only problem was, and this went back to the local initiative and the resolve, was that the best coal for the Royal Navy really was from Wales and Northern England. And so those members of parliament who lived in those areas didn't like the idea that the Navy was going to turn all of its vessels into oil-burning vessels. Uh, there were two people who were in uh, what was used to call Syria. Syria covered Saudi Arabia, parts of Iran, uh, and uh, Jordan, that, that whole area. One was T.E. Lawrence, who was an archaeologist. He also did some prospecting. And uh, William Yale. And William Yale was a descendant of the uh, founder of Yale University, but they had lost all their money. And he was working for John Rockefeller, and a representative of Standard Oil in New Jersey. And they both found that the Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia, had an awful lot of oil under the sand. And so that became a target for the British to look at as we can maybe control this area. Sykes-Picot, they wound up with the southern part where all the oil was. The French got basically the desert up to the north. And so this, this became part of what we now are still living with for the legacy of what happened in the Middle East. And it really came from the idea, basically, that the Royal Navy needed to have oil, and that was where the oil reserves that we knew about existed. This is resolution class. Again, this is where innovation comes into play, and also the amount of money that you're going to be willing to spend in order to pay for that. Resolution was two knots slower than the Queen Elizabeth's. They also made it through to World War II, as the Queen Elizabeth's did, but they, because they were, they were slower, they didn't have as much armor. A lot of the machinery on board was like downsized a bit. So we would call today fast battleships of the Queen Elizabeth class, which made it through all the way through World War II, really acquitted themselves very, very well. These were relegated to um, second tier in the Second World War, but they were still very, very good vessels at the Battle of Jutland. That's another view of the same ship. The other thing that, uh, that came about, and this was uh, through um, Admiral Fisher, it was the idea that let's put some big guns on basically, which is a, a very, very heavy cruiser. This was the battle cruiser. And the idea was this could take part in defending the empire. You're not going to send the home fleet to Singapore or Australia or somewhere else, you know, where you may have to defend. But you could send a squadron of ships that were bigger than anything else, faster than anything else, more uh, heavily uh, armed than any other vessel. And he referred to them as the Splendid Cats. It's, this is the, the first iteration, which you see all the guns are located on one main deck. Nothing is superimposed. Uh, they started to put them in echelon, uh, which is what, what the first generation of uh, German battlecruisers did. And by the way, the Germans did jump into the act and started to create battlecruisers as well. They were thinly armored. And this was something that was going to plague them through their career. Uh, this is uh, 
views of the battle cruiser. This is the next generation of the battle cruiser, where they actually superimpose the gun up one deck, up forward, uh, and they put them on the, all on the center line. Although uh, they could have done the same in the in the stern area. Later, they did that, and they uh, they were very very imposing ships. They looked great, you know, in parades and things. The epitome of the battlecruiser design. It was designed and came out in 1916, same time as Battle of Jutland, and they included some of the uh, things that they learned from that battle. This is HMS Hood, and everybody knows what happened with HMS Hood. Now, the other fellow on the other side of the North Sea, um, Kaiser Wilhelm, interesting guy, he had an idea that he wanted to have a navy just as good as, as, uh, as Britain. Now, they were not saddled with all this tradition that they had to overcome uh, in fact, where British ships were designed to fit the dockyards, fit the canals, fit all of the uh, areas where they had to be serviced, you didn't have that. Instead, they built the infrastructure around the size of the ship. So Kiel Canal, all the dockyards and Wilhelmshaven that worked on, the, uh, on these vessels were built specifically for the dimensions that they came up with with the ships. Now, the, the German vessels were always broader in the beam. That makes them a better gun platform. You know, if you expand the length of the hull exponentially, you can gain more uh, speed. So you can have a wider ship, make it a little longer, you'll get a faster vessel. And they seized on that immediately. The other thing they did was they had uh, cutoffs in their uh, feed system for ammunition. In other words, as a shell or powder came up through the ship, as it went through one deck, an automatic uh, door would close behind it, you get to the next one, another one would close behind that until it got up to the, uh, to the gun platform. This meant that if uh, you got a hit in the top, it wouldn't, sparks or the fire would not travel down and explode the magazine. Even when they did this even in the, their own uh, battlecruiser designs. And the battlecruisers that the Germans built at Battle of Jutland that were used there, uh, only one did not survive. Uh, Seidlitz, which was one of the models I had out last night, came home with the decks awash and with 15 major caliber hits uh, all over the sides, superstructure, turrets. Every gun was knocked out by the time she got back, but she survived, was back in service uh, 11 months later. Uh, there you see that's uh, one of the uh, canals that is wider than was needed. Uh, I mean, Britain would have to uh, take apart part of their uh, infrastructure to support that. Again, here are superimposed turrets. Here you see the, this is the value that they looked into as far as engineering for fire control. You know, if you have two Two sets of guns, and nothing was radar guided at this time. Remember that they couldn't fire by radar. Everything was like optical. So the turrets and the people you had and the optics that the Germans had, which were far superior to what the, the British had. In fact, the British, the good ones they had, they bought from Germany before the war, uh, uh, were, were far superior in terms of hits that they scored on the uh, on British ships. Uh, this is Bayern. This is the last iteration of, uh, of dreadnoughts that they built. And here you see something very interesting. Uh, they decided to scientifically look at how shells would react with armor. So rather than guess or just say, well, for every inch of, of gun, we're going to have another inch of, of, of armor, they said they went and they built a mock-up, full-size mock-up, and then they fired at it. Um, that cost a lot of money to do, but they felt that that was very, very important to understand what would happen in, the, uh, you know, in, a, in, in a battle. They also, all of their ships were also coal-fired. Now, Bayern was the last, and this was designed to also take oil if they had reserves of oil, which they were planning to get from Romania. The, there were three, uh, the, the, the propulsion on these ships was, was very different, too. 
whereas the English ships, the British ships, all had four screws, four propellers, four shafts. The Germans had three. And that center shaft was run by a diesel engine, which took up a lot less space. So in a battle, if you are hit and your turbines are knocked out or the steam plant is knocked out or the boilers go down, you had the diesel engine, which was about the size of maybe half of these seats going all the way up to the side that could operate and drive the ship fast enough to get out of harm's way. So even the uh, engine the diesel they put on was part of the damage control systems that they, that they put into, into their vessels. Uh, this is, again, Bairns is the last of uh, iteration. You'll notice that all the guns are on the center line. They, that's one thing they finally learned. They could get a full broadside out of everything. The, the uh, protected, you see down in the stern, the skeg in the, at the stern, you know, protected those torpedoes. One of the things that both navies were afraid of were mines. I mean, Brit, Britain lost uh, HMS Audacious to a mine off of Northern Ireland, and it was only a 13-month-old vessel at the time. They kept it secret. So torpedoes, and uh, this is a, a top view of the same ship. Torpedoes uh, were also uh, very much something that they feared, both sides feared. Jellicoe was scared to death of this at Jotlow, which is why he broke off action and, and kept retiring and then coming back afterwards. And what they did was, the Germans, they created something that the British did not have. They had longitudinal bulkheads on either side of the engine spaces. Now in Britain, they had compartmentalized, but they were all uh, transverse which means they went from side to side of the ship, almost like a, uh, a single loaded uh, ice cube tray. So if you took a hit in two compartments, you would start the list. It's pretty hard to fix that list by counterflooding if you don't have a transverse uh, longitudinal bulkhead. The Germans had that. In fact, they had two on each side. So they were always able to maintain uh, balance and keep the ship from capsizing. This is why sidelets made it all the way back under its own power uh, after taking those hits, and the foredeck was actually a wash when she came back. Uh, the uh, armor arrangement was a little bit different. They looked more of it as let it penetrate first, set off the, uh, the fuse on the armor-piercing projectile, get it to explode against the secondary armor, and then the blast goes out from the ship rather than in. This is sidelets. This is the ship that took the 15 major hits. But if you look up in the, up, up in the top, you see the three fish. That's also in the very, very bow. Now, when she came back to, uh, to Wilhelmshaven, only the top fish was showing. And they actually had to wait until uh, a high tide to get her over the, the bar to get back into the, uh, uh, the canal to get her back. Uh, this is what a torpedo would do. This is a, a, a German vessel which took a torpedo hit um, earlier in the war. And they learned a lot because they, they, they would take these ships, put them in the dock, and study them and figure out what they could do to, to improve those. This was a hit from a shell. Again, you see the large size of the hole? Well, if you're hit with an armor-piercing projectile, even if it's a 15-inch, it's going to make a hole about half the size of it. That's it. And then it's going to explode inside and create a lot of damage. Here, it hit that secondary uh, armor-plated uh, bulkhead, exploded, and the blast went out. You see the way the, uh, the sides sort of open out on the, on the back frame. The, the one bent in was, with the, was the initial uh, you know, entry position. blast itself went outward. So they were very, very smart about what they did. Uh, this is a, just a view of uh, typical broadside elevation. This is sideless. This is actually in port after the Battle of Jutland. Uh, you can see uh, up forward two holes, one massive one and one further down. All the guns are, are knocked out. She came back with not a single gun operational, uh, yet she was uh, one of the, she and Van der Tan were uh, one of the ones that sank one of the, uh, 
you know, British battle cruisers. And this, again, this is a battle cruiser. Take this amount of punishment. It's not a dreadnought. It's not an armored vessel. It's, it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing and attested to the, the ability of the, uh, the German engineers to do that. U.S. Navy took this to heart. You know, the vessels, other than Oklahoma, which sank at uh, Pearl Harbor, were all invested with the um, technology that they learned from Ostfriesland. Uh, the counter-flooding, uh, California, which took a number of hits, didn't capsize, settled on an even keel. West Virginia, same thing, all hit on one side, settled on an even keel. Oklahoma did not. And the reason for that, she was not upgraded because she was going to be um, decommissioned uh, in two years. She still had reciprocating engines rather than uh, uh, a turbine, so she was looked at as one of the ships that was going to, uh, going to be decommissioned within the, within the five-year period that the Navy had at the time. This is Bayern, and this is in the fighting ship. She didn't fight at Jutland. They actually never fought. Uh, this is what happened to, to Bayern. She was one of the ships that was scuttled at Scapaflow. Notice it's on an even keel. Uh, later on, when they uh, uh, salvaged these, they brought them to the surface. Uh, they were all scrapped. I think you can see, I'm not sure. Can you see three screws? There may be one. I have two that are in here. One is a, a four-screw ship, and the other one is uh, the three, which shows the, oops, no, we don't want him yet. Uh, the, the third one, which uh, is that diesel engine that I talked about before. Some of these ships are still at the bottom, but most were, were actually uh, raised. And it was a, tr a pretty interesting uh, salvage operation, too. The British hired a bunch of German engineers to come in and help them with the salvage. It was always sort of ironic. This is the other fellow who was very interested in navies, and he was part of what the transition period was for the Navy. Uh, this is USS Hartford. Uh, uh, Farragut's flagship at Battle of Mobile Bay, wooden, steam-powered, has a full rig. Uh, this was the, uh, the dominant feature of technology coming out of the United States. This is the turret of the USS Monitor, which they have at the museum just down the road. However, for a long, long time, the United States did not put any money into its Navy. In fact, one Secretary of the Navy who was appointed, I think it was under Chester, Alan Arthur, didn't know that ships were actually hollow, that you would go inside. He thought this was, they were all... It was a solid things, and you walked around, and somehow they floated. Well, the tradition that they had was to get away from, they didn't want to have a, a monitors. You couldn't, couldn't take a monitor across the ocean. It wasn't really practical. So they built vessels that had some freeboard, some, some, uh, some firepower. This was uh, armed with six-inch guns, but they had a full uh, rig, and the idea was you can shut the engines down and just kind of cruise for a while to save, uh, to save uh, coal. The other thing was uh, U.S. Congress, and this had to do with the uh, intestinal fortitude of, of the people who make the decisions of, of the money, the financial end, and also what are, they, what are you going to do for us in our, our particular uh, jurisdiction. Uh, this is the ram Catahan. You're looking at it from a bow on. Remember we talked about uh, the ram bow being a really big fad? Well, the United States decided, well, you know, if we're, gonna, we're not going to have a world navy that has to go out and all over the uh, the globe, but we do want to protect our ports. And the Congress people who were in areas, say like Norfolk, uh, Boston Harbor, the West Coast, San Francisco, they would build vessels to protect their entrances to the harbor. And these would augment the uh, Army Corps of Engineers uh, coastal artillery that we had. And that was the mindset that we had of the United States Navy. This is what she looked like on the dock just before she was. Uh, there are no guns on this ship except for one signaling gun. Um, it, it was 115 degrees inside. That's what it looked like in the water. And this was uh, the era just where they were building pre-dreadnoughts over in England. 
Next step up. This was the HMS, uh, the USS Puritan. This was the one of the, the smallest model that was out there last night. Uh, Ten-inch guns in a turret in the bow. Eight-inch guns in the stern. I guess the idea was you would approach the enemy and sink them all, and maybe you had to finish them off after you turned around. I don't know. There they were only two, only four guns on the whole vessel. It had a ram bow. And when you went to battle stations, repel an enemy coming into your uh, into your harbor, you would ballast it down. This is looking at the bow. Right? That's what it looked like when you're at battle stations. You know, you're, you're running uh, ballasted down, uh, basically a wash. Uh, I like the little little doghouse there between the guns and the front. That's to keep the rain out of one of the uh, ventilators that they have. This was Texas. This is the other small model I had last night. And Texas had two guns and a turret in echelon on either side. There you see there's the turret with the one gun and the crew. And Texas was a second-class battleship. Kearsarge was the, was the first beginnings of stirring of uh, creating seagoing vessels. And Kearsarge had an interesting thing. They put an 8-inch turret on top of a 10-inch turret fore and aft, and then sticking to the old tradition, they had casemate guns along the side. Uh, Kearsarge lasted a long time. Yeah, that's, that's Kearsarge crossing the equator. Uh, a bow on view, you'll see those big cranes. In fact, the last uh, uh, use of this ship was in the, in the 40s. She lasted that long. She turned into a crane ship for the Navy for a number of years. They used to love to have pictures taken. You know, uh, nobody would ever go to battle like this, but they loved to have these pictures taken, and they're uh, a number of uh, uh, U.S. Naval uh, archive that showed different ships like that. This became the next generation. There's a turret on either end. There you see. This is the Illinois class. Notice the two funnels, smokestacks on either side. Uh, this ship lasted and was actually in New, New York uh, Harbor and was used for the uh, New York Naval Militia during World War II to train uh, uh, officers going through the, um, not ROTC, what do they call that, the... Uh, Middle block. OCS, that's right. Uh, the other thing that was uniquely American, and this was the first dread, dreadnought for her, this is the, uh, so, uh, the South Carol Carolina, uh, are the cage masts. Uh, those are designed so that if an enemy shell hit it, it would go through, wouldn't collapse. It was a great idea. And then we can put our fellows up at the very, very top there to do our spotting, and they'd feel very safe. <laughs> Didn't work that way. Actually, in a storm, one of those folded over, and there were th uh, three that were in the, in the foretop were actually killed. But we kept that, and that became uniquely American uh, for a number of years. This is a real dreadnought. That's the freeboard. You're able to actually go into the uh, Atlantic or the Pacific and that and, uh, and live. Part of the reason that the German Navy had low freeboard in their ships is because they didn't worry about going around the world to uh, save, you know, save their empire. Their empire was pretty much landlocked in the other places of the world except for the Pacific. And so their accommodations for their crews were almost based on two-week sorties, whereas Britain would have enough room for their sailors to be comfortable aboard the ships. The Germans weren't, because they were only looking at using those ships in the North Sea. So they were designed for the North Sea, whereas Britain designed their ships to go around the world. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.